Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. Tonight I am looking forward to speaking to us at 6 p.m. about our upcoming summer discipleship plan. I'm excited about it. Pray that God will use it to strengthen our souls and to give us great blessing. But this morning we're returning to our verse-by-verse study of this Gospel of Luke. And we're returning to the parable of the soils. Now many of you know perhaps that my favorite novel is Moby Dick by Herman Melville. Logan knows that and Ben know that. They're experiencing it right now. It isn't really a novel. There's not a good word to describe what the book is. As you turn from chapter to chapter, 135 in all, you never know what's coming next. Meaning the next chapter might be a narrative that's going to tell you of something that happens. Or it might be a conversation in the style of a Shakespearean play. Or it might be an essay on the color of the whale. The next chapter might be a sermon from a seafaring preacher. It might be a song. Each chapter is its own little masterpiece. And then all 135 are woven together to tell this epic story about Captain Ahab and his vengeful hunt for the white whale. Well, the boat, called the Pequod, is filled with a whole cast of characters coming from many different places on the earth. I think the boat is a picture of all humanity. And they are led by Captain Ahab, a devilish man who is intent on destroying the white whale. And in many ways, Ahab is like Satan himself. He's leading in the rebellion against God, seeking to destroy God. And all who are crew members on his ship are being led by him in that rebellion. And the white whale is described again and again in divine language. He is powerful, mysterious, majestic, pure, unable to be defeated, true to his own nature in every way. Towards the end of the book, in one of the shortest chapters, we find a member of the crew, a savage man named Tashtigo, aboard the deck of the Pequod. And as he looks around him, it's, it's thundering. Have you ever been out on the ocean in a thunderstorm? If it's right on you, it's frightening, but it's amazing when it's, when it's in the distance. And you can see the power of it, and there's something reverential about it. It's, it's magnificent. But Tashtigo doesn't care. And it's clear by this point that Captain Ahab is leading everybody on this boat to their deaths. And he doesn't care about that either. He's just a few days away from utter destruction. And what's on his mind? Um, 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 stop that thunder. Plenty too much thunder here. What's the use of thunder? We don't want thunder. We want rum. Just give us a glass of rum. Who cares about looming death? 
or that you ought to be restraining Ahab and turning this boat around as quickly as you can. No. As long as Tashchigo's got rum, he's happy. And so he becomes a picture for us of the worldling. He's a picture of the person who is on his way to destruction. A person who is following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2. But he doesn't care. He doesn't know and he doesn't care to know. As long as he's got food in his belly, comfy bed to sleep on at night, Netflix to veg to, who cares about the end of all things? Who cares about the soul? Who cares about eternity? Uh, Here we are this morning and we're trafficking in spiritual matters. We're talking about things of eternal importance. Could it be that you're not really into that? Certainly seems like many of our friends and neighbors aren't into that. As they go about their lives, they're being carried along and they're losing the eternal for the things that are passing. And every once in a while, as they go about their daily concerns and their daily anxieties and their pursuit of various pleasures, every once in a while, something goes deeper than the surface and grabs the attention of their soul. Maybe thunder. A good thunderstorm can do that. A good good thunderstorm can give you that moment of awe and reverence, that, that deep sense that there is a God in heaven. But so quickly, the person turns right back to the cares of the world, pushes all thoughts of God out of his mind. The person continues to live for the here and the now, the meat and the money, the passing entertainments, the next day of work. Is that you this morning? Look with me at Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 4. Beginning in verse 4. This is the word of God. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Look down at verse 14. Verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So remember our context. We see it there in verse 4. Jesus is at the height of his popularity. People are coming from everywhere. They are coming from town after town, 
Earlier in Luke, we saw more of Jesus preaching in local synagogues. Now he's preaching to fields full of people. He's preaching on hillsides full of people. In the next chapter, we're going to see him preaching, and there's 5,000 men that need to be fed. And perhaps many more women and children. So Jesus is now preaching to huge masses. And in that context, Jesus makes an alteration in his preaching style. And he begins to teach more through stories, through parables. And we've already looked at why he began teaching that way and the explanation that he gave to his disciples. And this particular parable is about the different kinds of people that were in the crowds that were coming to hear Jesus. Some were coming because they genuinely longed to hear what he had to say. They came humbly. They came hungry for spiritual truth. The soil of their hearts was receptive. Good soil, honest soil. We'll see next week. Some were coming as cynics. They were coming as critics. Others, they were coming to see the miracles. They wanted to see a show. Others were coming just because they had been laid low by some illness or ailment for a long time, and they just wanted relief. We know the ultimate point of Jesus' teaching here because he's going to make it clear in verse 18. In verse 18, Jesus makes his point clear. Take care then how you hear. For the word of God will always have its intended effect. The word of God is a dangerous sword. The word of God can soften hearts. It can convict souls. It can bring people to Jesus. The word of God can comfort and encourage and equip and establish and build up. But that same word can also harden hearts and solidify people in their rebellion against God. The word of God is like seed cast into all kinds of soils. And what is produced depends upon the condition of the heart. Four soils. Four heart conditions. We've looked at the hardened heart. The heart that does not wish to receive the truths of God. And we've looked at the superficial heart. The the heart that initially receives the word of God with joy. But it has no roots. It has no moisture coming in. When the trials come and the sun shines hot and bright. The plant withers and it dies. This morning, I want us to focus in on the seed among thorns. What does our Lord tell us in verse 14? They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So we have here a person who hears the truths of God. 
This person hears the message of God and His holiness, men and our sinfulness, the, the salvation given freely to all who believe on Jesus Christ. And this message is received. The, the seed is planted in the soil. A plant grows up. Things look promising. This person may well be someone who makes a public profession. This may well be someone who is baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For a while, you find them at church. They're learning and they're growing. But unfortunately, their interest in the things of God isn't the only thing growing. We find that there's something else growing alongside these thorns. And if the thorns went out, this plant will never mature and never bear good fruit. What is the danger of this passage? The danger of this passage is having your faith in Jesus proven false because it does not endure. Remember, true faith is a persevering faith. Matthew 24, verse 13, Jesus says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or listen carefully as Paul explains it in Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You've been reconciled. You will be holy and blameless on the last day if you continue. Hebrews 3.14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Romans 11.22, behold then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fail, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. This is what we call the perseverance of the saints. This is the truth that those who have been truly born again by the Spirit of God, those who have been made a new creation, those who have, have a God-given faith within their souls, they will persevere to the end through every trial, through every temptation, through every twist and turn of your life. You will get to the end blessing and trusting the name of Jesus. But one of the great evidences of those who have false faith, man-made faith, is that it does not endure and it does not persevere. And one way that false faith can be revealed is through trials. And we saw that last time as we looked at the rocky soil and the heat of the sun bearing upon it. But there is another way. 
that faith can be revealed as false. It's a faith that doesn't last because other things begin to rule in the heart other than God. The seed among thorns represents the idolatrous heart, the heart that starts out well, but eventually gives its highest allegiance, delight, and priority to something else, anything else other than the Lord. What is the danger presented to us here? It's the danger of your faith in Jesus being choked out as other concerns become more important to you. Now we have to ask, is it fatal? Is it fatal? Because Jesus only says here that the plant fails to produce mature fruit. Doesn't say the plant dies. He says the plant only fails to produce mature fruit. And so because of that, some have tried to say that the seed among thorns represents true Christians who get to heaven, but having not been very useful to Jesus in this life. 30 years ago, it was very popular for people to preach that this was the person who knows Jesus as Savior, but doesn't know Jesus as Lord. This is the person who who has their sins forgiven, and they're going to heaven, but they're not going to have many treasures laid up there. Because they didn't produce much fruit on earth. Some even said this was the person who prays a prayer for salvation and gets saved and then goes on and lives like the rest of the world. They didn't actually follow Jesus with their lives, but they prayed that prayer, so they make it. Does this plant, the seed among thorns, represent someone who is truly saved, barely gets into heaven, not much fruit? Or is Jesus describing a plant that is not truly his? And the answer is the latter. Because throughout the entirety of the rest of the New Testament, it is clear those who are truly saved bear fruit. Those who have been truly born again by the Spirit of God do mature, do produce good fruit. If you are not bearing fruit, you have no scriptural grounds to believe that you are saved. I'll give you a couple of examples from right here in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. John the Baptist is baptizing people in the river Jordan. And the Pharisees come to be baptized. And John refuses. They're they're making a a public profession. They're here to be baptized. And yet John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Meaning, I will not baptize you. I will not allow you to be counted among this new repentant people of God until we see fruit. And then John the Baptist says this. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down And thrown into the fire. Luke 13. Jesus tells the people. Repent or perish. And then he tells them a short parable. And the parable begins this way. A man had a fig tree. 
planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Whatever cut it down means, I don't think it means going to heaven. Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So Christ's warning to us this morning is not a warning, you might make it to heaven and not have many rewards. That's not the warning. The warning is that the cares of this world can keep you from heaven itself. It's about the danger of having your faith choked out. Proven false by the cares of this world. Jesus is a good gardener. He's he's the great vine dresser. Every soul in which Jesus is at work will persevere to the end and will bear good fruit. His bride will be spotless on the last day. He will complete the work and all in whom he began it. We will be like the man of Psalm 1 who bears its fruit in season, like a tree planted by streams of water. Jesus is at work and those who are his, and he works through our own wills. He works through our own discipleship, through our own engaging with his word, through being fed and nourished. Through having our own hearts and minds set on the things of God and and obeying God in real life. If your heart and mind is set almost exclusively on the things of this world, things that won't matter a million years from now, this warning is for you. So for the sake of your soul, I ask you to hear it. Jesus mentions three threats. Look at them quickly. Number one, he mentions cares. The cares of this life. This word is translated elsewhere as worries or anxieties. Friends, did you realize that worry and anxiety are not just a danger to your body, to your blood pressure, to your physical health? Worry and anxiety are a danger to your soul. Think about Peter walking on the water. And when his eyes were on Christ, he was able to walk without anxiety. He was able to walk with stability. He was able to walk with security upon the waves. But when he took his eyes off Christ and he set them on the wind and he set them on the waves, he he began to sink as fear grew in his heart. So also, when you allow your worries to become more powerful to you than your risen and ascended Lord, you are beginning to sink spiritually. And if you allow those thorns to grow, they will choke your faith. And so the cure, of course, is to set your eyes on Jesus. He has authority in all, he has all authority in heaven and on earth, including authority over every detail of your life. And he has promised to use that authority to do good to you. If you've entrusted yourself to Christ, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. All is being worked for your eternal welfare. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. With whatever degree of faith you have, trust these promises and trust in the promise maker who is also a promise keeper.
trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch your heart. Don't let those worries and anxieties grow unchecked. If you find yourself in a season like that, you need to take some time aside and go spend some hours with the Lord. Cast your cares upon Him. He cares for you. Second, our Lord mentions the threat of riches. Riches. How many have lost their souls because the desire for money and wealth and possessions in this life just continued to grow like a weed in your garden. In Moby Dick, Captain Ahab nails a gold coin to the mast. And he promises that coin to whoever spots the white whale. When the crew should have been plotting how to take down Captain Ahab, when they should have been figuring out how to extract themselves to any other ship, when they should have been doing anything rather than continue on this doomed voyage, it was the desire for that gold that kept many under evil Ahab's sway. And when the fierce white whale was finally spotted, the whole crew begins fighting over who saw it first, who gets to have the gold. As if any of it was going to matter in the end. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul describes those who desire to be rich. He describes the love of money. In other words, the issue isn't money or wealth or possessions in and of themselves. Those things can be possessed and used for noble, God-honoring purposes. The Puritan Samuel Willard said, We must so use and possess the goods we have that the possession of them may tend to God's glory and the salvation of souls. Our riches must be employed to necessary uses. These are first, the maintenance of your own good estate and condition. Secondly, the good of others, especially those that are of our family or kindred. Thirdly, the relief of the poor. Fourthly, the maintenance of the church of God and true religion. And fifth, the maintenance of the commonwealth. So there are good and right uses for money and wealth. But that said, there is something broken in the human heart that gives money and possessions a subtle, deceptive power for over us. Even when our, our motives start out well, I want to create this business that's going to prosper so I can use it for the glory of God. And after a while, you find it's not you possessing money, it's money possessing you. This inordinate desire for riches can lead into so many other sins. Paul mentions that it, it can become a snare. Greed has a way of trapping us. Greed has a way of entangling us in sinful desires that cause us to, to think, to speak, to act in ways that otherwise we would never have done. 
I think it's interesting, Paul uses that word senseless, right? Greed has a way of causing you to compromise your integrity and to lose your spiritual senses. I think a good example of that is the prodigal son, where he knew he had this inheritance coming to him. And that desire for that wealth and that, those possessions, that, that desire, it began to get a hold of him. He couldn't wait. He wanted that inheritance now. And then when he finally got it, what did he do? He went and wasted it away. As the Proverbs warn, Wayne gained, wealth, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. And it's interesting that the prodigal son parable tells us that while he was there with the pigs, destitute, The language that Jesus uses is that he came to his senses. For a while, the desire for possessions, the desire to be wealthy and rich and to enjoy the pleasures of this world, they had caused him to become temporarily insane. And only by the grace of God in his poverty did he come to his senses. Uh, Greed is vile because it deceives the sinner. It's a hunger that's never really satisfied. Solomon knew something about riches. Solomon knew something about possessing great riches. And he said in Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Meaning, it's never enough. It's never enough. Greed never gives way to contentment. Instead, greed leads us away from God, away from our Savior, down a path that ends in destruction. And so if this is a thorn that you see growing up in your life, what can you do? First, consider the tactic of hope. Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. The first half of that proverb is negative. A greedy man stirs up strife. And we, we see how the desire for wealth in a person's heart can lead to conflict in his relationships. John 12 tells us that Judas had greed in his heart. And therefore he tried to stir up strife when that woman Mary came and poured expensive ointment on Jesus' feet. That money could have been used to feed the poor. Even though we know Judas really wanted it for himself. But the second half of that proverb is wonderfully true and wonderfully positive. The one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Solomon lays down this principle and it's a principle we see confirmed again and again in the New Testament. Those who trust in God will be richly blessed by him. Now, it might mean that that person will see earthly wealth come his way. Certainly, those who put it into practice, God's principles of hard work and honesty and pursuing skillfulness, they shouldn't be surprised when they find their hard work rewarded in this life. But the proverb isn't guaranteeing earthly wealth. It just makes the larger point that those who trust in the Lord will be enriched. And there are kinds of riches that are far greater than money and possessions. Better to be poor and satisfied in Christ than wealthy and ill-content. And in the end, all God's people will reign over the new heavens and the new earth. And as Paul says in Corinthians, all is ours. 
So see the power of hope. See the, the, the power of the eager expectation of what Christ has promised to you. When you're on your way to be crowned, you don't have to worry about the fact that you're not traveling in luxury. And then second, if this is a thorn that you see growing up in your life and testing your faith, consider the tactic of faith in God's provision. Faith in God's provision. You see, you have a good shepherd, and he is not going to let you go without unless it is for your eternal good. He is with you every moment. He is with you to care for you. And Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, the writer to Hebrews says that this is a secret of true contentment. Trusting in the provision of the one who never leaves your side. He's a good shepherd. Do you trust your shepherd? Do you have confidence in his care for you? Then then don't fret about what you don't have. Fight greed with faith in Christ's provision. And then finally, that third threat. Do you see it there? Jesus mentions the threat of the pleasures of life. How many are wasting their lives away on menial pleasures? I think about Vanity Fair and Pilgrim's Progress. Christian and faithful are on their way to the celestial city. They're they're taking their journey to heaven. First, they have to pass through Vanity Fair. In fact, Bunyan tells us no person can ever make it to heaven without passing through Vanity Fair. And there's so much to see at this fair. Oh, there's so much to do, so many attractions, so many distractions, so many things you can see, so many things you can buy. Bunyan tells us that there are many travelers on their way to heaven who forget about their journey. They end up living at that fair. They are delighted by the shows and the games and the trinkets and they end up spending their lives away. They never make it within the walls of the celestial city. And when the day of judgment comes, they are not among those who are safe. In the story, the people of Vanity Fair, they find Christian and faithful to be very, very strange. They're not dressed the way the other people are dressed. They don't, they don't talk like they talk. They keep talking about this place called Canaan. Their hearts and their minds are set on the things to come, the, the world that they are seeking to reach. And, and for Christian and faithful, they're so caught up in thinking about that other world, they don't stop to enjoy the games and the trinkets. Creates such a hubbub. That these two men are arrested and put on trial. And Bunyan writes, So the men were brought to examination. And they sat before them and asked them where they had come from and where they were going. And what they were doing in such unusual clothes. And Christian and Faithful answered that they were pilgrims and strangers in that world. And that they were going to their own country. Which was called the heavenly Jerusalem. An eternal mindset. 
Now, Herman, this is why we need preaching. We need to be constantly reminded of the big picture. We need to be reminded of eternity because there is so much in this life that could take our focus and get us completely just setting the things of eternity out of mind, out of sight and out of mind while we focus on this and this and this and and the pleasures of 21st century American life. We need to regularly be reminded of eternity. We need to regularly hear the promises and the warnings of Scripture pressed upon us. In our own Bible reading, we can can see these things, but there are times when our hearts just push them away. But in preaching, we are confronted with what we need to hear. In preaching, we are reminded about that other world and about the dangers of getting caught up in Vanity Fair. It's why worldly hearts turn people away from preaching. As the the thorn of worldliness grows, there will be this desire within the soul to stay away from the church. I don't want to be confronted. I don't want to be reminded. For those who are faithful to not only come to preaching, but to receive it and to be confronted by it, it is a gift In preaching, we are reminded of the glories of heaven that cause the best glories of this earth to seem superficial and shallow and passing. This is also why we need each other. We need each other. Let us not fail to stir one another up to greater faith. Talk often together about heaven. Talk often together about the day of resurrection and the return of Jesus and the world to come and the day we will see His face. What's the state of your heart this morning? Do you see these thorns growing up? Do you see the danger that these thorns pose to your faith in Jesus? Could it be that your faith could be proven false? Or can you truly say this morning that your trust in Christ and joy in Christ surpasses all else? Jesus told the parable about the man who... (laughs) He discovered a treasure hidden in a field and in his joy sold everything he had to possess that field. Has your joy in Jesus risen to the point where you would give up every pleasure of this life to have Christ? Let's pray.